what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you very much for listening. I'm sitting here with uh, my friend and co-worker, Tyler Sparks, he is the CTO of Furos. Generally, he's the smartest guy in the room. He definitely is today. Um, he is uh, just a joy to, to learn from, and he's a former thaumaturg. Did I say that correctly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you can catch uh, myself, Tyler, Sarah Miller, Aaron Bach, and John Cox this fall at Denver Startup Week, where we're going to be talking about culture in a technological organization and that's going to be uh, the in-depth subject of this conversation today and with that tyler thanks for being here yeah thanks for having me on yeah absolutely it's been a while setting this up but i'm glad we finally got to do it you're you're actually out there doing real work so (laughs) (laughs) sometimes i wonder about that but yeah (laughs) i try to make sure it's real work (laughs) awesome well, I wanted to hit record quickly because what we were talking about in just preparation, you know, me taking some notes for this, um, you had talked about the, the hard approach and the soft approach to culture. And I just wanted to restart that now that we're recording and just let you elaborate on that because I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, it's kind of weird to get into a management discussion when you're talking about technology, but uh, there's this... Um, idea uh that is maybe a little bit overblown because engineers can be a bit egotistical and they want they want to be like a physicist right so (laughs) it's called conway's law um but it doesn't have the rigor of like a law in in physics or the law of gravity uh but the idea is that the the shape of something that you're trying to build in particular software will take on the design of the organization that creates it and so the common example is a little old, but it's if you have three teams and you ask them to build a compiler, you'll get a three-pass compiler. If you have four teams and you ask them to build a compiler, you'll get a four-pass compiler. And so uh, sort of playing into that, as I have done all these projects and worked with companies in, in different industries and markets and across the spectrum of sizes from uh, startups and a few people to thousands of employees, um, the thing that's kind of stayed the same is that they're, the products, the things they build look an awful lot like the company and the technical dysfunctions they have look an awful lot like the dysfunctions they have in their communication and in their organization. And so um, one of the things I realized, it's rarely that the, the technology is the root problem. Like I'll often get brought in to solve a technology problem, um, but you can't solve it permanently or for a long-term benefit without addressing the issues in the organization as well. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the approaches that there's like, I think they, I've seen them kind of talked about as the hard approach to management, which would be reorganizing. Um, so you, you say, oh, we want to change the way our company works and we're going to take this director and promote him to run this group and we're going to create this new team and, um, it, it just doesn't really work anymore because the market, the industry is shifting so quickly. You can't redesign your organization every six months successfully and have people work together. And so 
the soft approach is more about motivation and morale. Um, how do you get people pumped up to do their work? Everybody knows that low morale is going to result in low output, lower quality work. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can't just put a foosball table in the break room. Like, oh, look, we're like Google now. Everybody should be happy to work here. <laughs> Magically, look, our productivity is up 400%, right? Um, you know, you see that it's, it's kind of funny, not to, to name drop, but like uh, oh, a lot of people will look at Pivotal and, and they're like, oh, Pivotal, man, uh, we want that culture. And so they, they lift the ping pong tables and the foosball, but they forget, they, they fail to recognize um, that fundamentally... The, the company is operating differently and that's why they're successful. It's not because of the ping pong and the foosball. And so I get really excited about technology, but I also recognize that it's very difficult to solve the technology problem if you haven't addressed the people problem. Well, and, and the part about Google and all the perks and all the benefits that people leave out of that equation, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they expect you to be there a lot. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not that you've got all this <laughs> stuff. It's like, mm, you're going to be here 16 oh, no. hours a day. That reminds me of when I was a grad student, and like there was a, there was a professor who would buy lunch every once in a while, and you know, he'd be like, oh, hey, you know, there's leftovers. Have, have some leftovers. Or he'd buy lunch for everybody. And there was this, I found out like at the end of the semester, there's this implicit expectation that if you were having lunch, you were going to be writing a paper with his name on it. And it was like, <laughs> what? You know, like I had this really awkward conversation about the status of my paper that I didn't know that I was supposed to be writing because I was getting free lunches as a part of a research group that I wasn't a part of. But that I think that there's maybe a little bit of implicit bias there where, yeah, they make it so that the line between work and the rest of your life is blurred. To the point where they kind of get more out of you um, because of those perks. But I do think that there's some healthy elements to it as well in the sense that um, it's it's good to enjoy working with your coworkers. Like Absolutely. it's good to it's good to have a good time at work. Um, I'm more of the mindset that like I want to go in and I want to work hard with other people who want to work hard and we're gonna get the work done. But then we're gonna go home and we're gonna bike, ski, spend time with our families outside of that work context, you know, and I maintain those relationships across the context, but I don't want to spend all my time in the office. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that fun at the end of yeah. the day. I think maybe before I had kids, I was like, yeah, I'll just, yeah. I'll live at the office. But now I realize, man, there's so much more to life. <laughs> man, I remember those days when I was writing code for, um, Valley Lab at that point, and it always got worse closer to, and this is embedded code is truly a waterfall, right? Yeah. And <clears throat> I just remember getting closer and closer to that release date, and the it was just starting like an exponential curve of the time we'd be spending at the office. And the first time it was kind of exciting, you know, like work until midnight, and then after a couple of years on the job of coming in and going, oh, I don't want to, <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> oh yeah. That's well, that's, that's one of my issues with uh, velocity in the software industry right now, because velocity describes, you know, a, a direction and a magnitude. However, um, it's not, it's not like momentum. It doesn't describe a sustainable approach. Right. So most of the companies I know that use velocity as one of their key metrics or KPIs um, have problems with burnout. 
and it's kind of because there's not really that check like that velocity will a lot of times manifest in short-term goals tactical execution and not enough focus on strategy and so people get burned out tech debt accumulates in huge ways um, and is really not a sustainable approach if you talk about momentum it's really like you think of a big flywheel um, and getting that rolling and it might be slow to start right but once it's going it's easy to maintain mm-hmm. you don't have to put in a huge amount of effort to keep it moving an object in motion tends to stay in motion and that's that's kind of how i think of good engineering you you, you take incremental steps to build momentum towards your long-term strategy and then uh you, you'll get there uh there's a lot of other analogies out there around trains and all kinds of stuff but uh for, for me i just I think of it as how, how are you going to integrate the strategy into the day-to-day execution? You don't want to just have strategy and be a company of ideologues or perfect engineers because you're never going to get anything to market. Um, and you also don't want to be tactics only because you're never going to provide real value to your customers. Sure. So what was the story you were telling about the the bug fix? The company had brought you in to yeah. <laughs> fix bugs. I mean, I know way I'm oversimplifying it, but I wanted to go back to that story. because Yeah, was... I, I worked with a company a few years ago, and I think they mastered, uh, or well, intentionally or not, they had a great culture. And um, Was that by design, do you think? Or you said intentionally or not? They Did were you... a small team. Okay. So that's where I think like in a large organization, you have to be more intentional about maintaining and keeping culture going in the right direction. Uh, in a small company with a smaller engineering team, a lot of times you'll have a couple people, right, with an outsized impact um, that really define what goes on. You think of, uh, you know, you could mentor or coach like eight to 12 people successfully. So if you have a 20-person or 16-person engineering team, um, two strong leaders are going to be able to effectively lead and coach uh, that entire group. And so there's going to be a lot of um, implicit cultural norms uh, that just happen. Uh, Whereas in a bigger company, that spread isn't there. Like you can have two rock stars and they're not going to necessarily impact the whole company because they just can't coach and spend time with that many people. Right. Um, so this, in this scenario, I would say it was kind of on that smaller side of the equation. They had about 16, 17 engineers, a couple people remote, um, but they had built a very successful first product. So this, this company was fairly small, um, but their first sort of foray into the software world was they built this engineering team and they had appointed a CTO and they had a lot of good things going for them. And their first release of the product, um, resulted in basically doubling the revenue of the company. Wow. So after about a year of development, they had a software product that gave access to resources where their annual revenue from it equaled the entire rest of the company. So they got serious. They were like, okay, we got to do really well. But they had some churn problems. They had a lot of tech debt at the end of just a year of development, and they had built a monolithic Rails application. So... The CTO of the company so had reached out. define those two terms, tech debt and monolithic. Is... <clears throat> so the, the tech debt piece is where, you know, they had made compromises um, either in the code base or with uh, tooling integrations um, where they knew there was a problem. Mm. Uh, and so they, they knew they needed to fix it. 
didn't necessarily mean they had time, right? It's so just it's like functional but not perfect. Yeah, I mean you can think of it just tech debt similarly to financial debt, right? Okay. It's like you're you're living on credit. So you're you're saying, hey, we know this isn't the right way to do something, but we're gonna do it for now and we'll fix it later. And then all those waiters add up to a lot of debt <laughs> that needs to be paid off before right. you can keep working, right? And so effectively, like after a year, year and a half of, of work and building this team and having a lot of success in terms of the finances, they were at a point where they decided that it would actually be cheaper to rebuild the product than to try to fix all the tech debt. They want to declare bankruptcy, right? And so the CTO reached out to me and said, hey, can you come in and help? We're going to switch to a microservice model. And this is kind of early in the days of microservices. Um, and we're going to also switch from using Rails to .NET. And so I was like, all right, sounds fun. Let's do it. So I go in and I start talking and interviewing engineers and I realized that Nobody in their engineering group has ever worked with .NET before. <laughs> and, <laughs> so how did that decision get made then To if they had no experience to go to that platform? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's kind of an implicit desire to make a connection. And, you know, you could, you could guess at different reasons, but they probably wouldn't be right. At the end of the day, it was a decision that was being made that wasn't the right decision, right? And um, so without judging anybody, it just kind of was people thought it was a good idea and it wasn't a great idea because their entire engineering team didn't have the experience. And so um, I took kind of that information and what I learned about their tech debt and their bugs back to the CTO and kind of said, hey, look, if you trust me, which is a dangerous way to approach it, right? And I could even sound on the podcast, man, that might sound a little manipulative, but um, it was it was really because there's there's a lot of pressure in this environment, and I understand the risk that he's taking, right? And so, um, kind of went back to him and said, if you if you're willing to trust me, um, I want to take your the top five features, the top five issues you're trying to address with your version two product that you want to do in microservices and .NET, and I want to take an incremental approach to it, and you know. Let's define this as if we can get those top five items addressed incrementally on the existing system in two months, we'll keep going with what I'm trying to do. And if not, we'll switch gears. And, you know, if you want to terminate the contract, we'll be done, whatever. Like, let's, but if you, if you're, if you're willing to trust me, let's take a shot at this way, because I think this is going to work better. And um, this was also, I think, before or around the time, like the Phoenix project was released, mm. the, the novelization of the, the IT version of the goal. Uh, but I, without knowing that it was a Phoenix project, I just knew that I'd seen a bunch of these big bang projects in the past fail. And I was looking at an engineering team of you know, 17 people who were being set up for failure and they were excited to fail because they thought it was going to help them, but they just didn't have the experience to know kind of what they were going to get into. Did um, they know they were set up for failure or they were just excited about the new stuff? No, they were excited about the new stuff. I mean, there was some stuff going on with .NET that looked promising. Um, and, you know, they they were big on the microservice concept. Uh, they all were experiencing the issues where they go and they try to change something in Rails and they can't get any of the tests to pass and they're, they're stuck, can't move things forward and working long hours, frustrated and having trouble fixing bugs and releasing. So... Everybody was ready for a change and I think excited about the idea of Greenfield. But I knew that if they went down that path, they weren't doing anything to address the customers who were leaving then, right? And it might take them another year 
to release version 2.0 if they were lucky. But in that time, they were going to be giving up a lot of potential revenue because they were abandoning their existing product, right? That was only a year old. Mm -hmm. And um, they were also going to be uh, signing up for a whole bunch of new problems they didn't know how to address. At least with the existing product, they knew what their problems were, right? Like they had a very defined set of issues their customers were being very vocal about. And people loved the product, but they just had these issues, right? They needed to get past. And um, if I go into what the issues are too much, I'll be giving the product and the company away. But uh, so we, we, I went in and I started teaching them about event-driven systems, um, started unpacking where these issues were, uh, realized that the team had a ton of expert expertise in JavaScript because a lot of them had been front-end developers before. Um, and so we ended up doing a lot of new work with uh, JavaScript with, with Node um, and uh, focused in on those, those core issues. Um, now, the coolest part of this, and especially this being a success story, was at the end of the two months, we were successful and then dialed back the engagement. So I was just a resource as they kept working and encountered issues. Seven months after that, like around nine months total, um, they had achieved every single goal for their 2.0 project, plus a whole bunch of things that hadn't been goals that would have been stretch or lucky to have. Um, and they'd actually continued to grow the customer base. They'd been modifying the existing application successfully. They were losing fewer customers. Uh, so the whole organization was just kind of on fire. Like this was a 60 person company total. And so this was like a full third of the company was this, this group and, you know, having, having all this impact, um, because of the growth, they were able to hire more engineers. So they were bumping up their team size. Uh, and then one of the coolest parts from my perspective was they had built that core competency to the point where they had so few bugs in their code base and around their business concerns um, that they were starting to replace vendors. And mm. so uh, like they were a company that was really relying on JD Edwards. And if anybody's worked with JD Edwards, especially several years ago, uh, they don't have APIs. They have SFTP connections and they move files back and forth. And so just as an example, they had a vendor product that sat in front of JD Edwards in order to manage um, their inventory. And, uh, it got to the point where like their biggest bugs were coming out of that system. And so this team was able to go and completely replace a multi-million dollar vendor product that wasn't working for them and improve the customer's benefit. And they did it in just three weeks. Wow. And so it's like they built that expertise. They had a system where they could learn, they could adapt. They, had, they were reducing risk and controlling the changes to the system and making safe transitions to the point where they were exceeding the engineering capabilities of vendors who were probably bigger than they were. And so uh, that was, that's a really cool success story in terms of maturity and how uh, the technology changes can have an impact. But it was really the technology with the culture. Like we took the awesome parts of their culture and their leadership and kept them and helped solve technology issues and make those transitions along the way, right? And they were already small enough. They kind of had some self-organizing concepts going on. And as they grew, they formalized it more. And uh, there's just a ton of cool outputs from, from that project. That's yeah. awesome. So just so I have this straight, they had a, a product that was successful that made a ton of money mm -hmm. 
And once they dug into it, they realized that it was bad enough that they had to scrap it. Yeah. Like that was the best decision they were facing. Yep. <laughs> wow. And and that's the thing too, is like that the crazy part of that was like that nine month timeline. There wasn't a single bit of the original code base that was still running nine months later. And for their 2.0 build, their original projection had been that it was going to take them one to one and a half years to build. And so like they had hired me to jumpstart it. And, you know, I definitely helped shorten that timeline as a resource to the team and everything. But I'd say the bigger impact was allowing the team to work incrementally and, and taking that kind of pressure off. That, hey, for a year and a half, we've had people sitting on the 1.0 product who are leaving and they're dissatisfied and they're, it's a poor representation of our brand and what the capabilities and possibilities are now that we know there's a market for it. Instead, they were taking them, they were growing it, they're feeding it, and they're keeping everybody focused, right? Because inevitably, you know somebody from the board is going to come back and be like, why can't problem X be solved? We'll hire contractors to do it, take take somebody off the team and put them on solving this problem because we're losing X percentage of customers a month, right? And so you're going to end up splitting and duplicating efforts too. And that's just not a cost-effective way to work. Some big companies, I think, believe that they can afford to take that approach. But the reality is it's it's too expensive for anyone to do ever successfully. You have to give your people the autonomy to make the best decisions, but then you also have to give them the incentives to collaborate and to, to work together as a team. And that's where you're going to get the best results. I mean, you know, I'm flattered that you think I'm a very smart guy, but I know very, very well that my outputs are always significantly better when I am working with somebody else, when it's the product of two minds and not just my own ideas. And uh, I love those working relationships where you can have a productive uh, dialogue, especially about something that we disagree and then come to a better conclusion than either of us would have reached on our own. And so I, I, I believe in that being the biggest asset to a company. You know, you hire all these smart people because you want a great product they're also capable of achieving something better than any of them could provide individually. So how do you make sure that that is what you are setting up in your company, that environment and culture, not one where, you know, somebody's ego uh, or technology strategy <laughs> is controlling yeah. what people are allowed to do. Right. And there's a lot of talk about governance at bigger companies. Um, and the problem there, I think is that the focus is on limiting what people can do. And my perspective is technology should always be an enabler. And, you know, people make decisions based on what resources they have available and what their constraints are. And that can be a hard approach or a soft approach. Who am I allowed to work with? Or how do I feel about this person that I'm working with? Uh, but what you want to be able to do is give people the power to work autonomously to get things done independently with very few blockers, right? But you also want them to do that collaboratively because you know that the result is going to be better. Sure. Well, and I'm sure they could have found, you know, a dime a dozen, somebody to come in and just rebuild the, the product. And they would have been, I'm just speculating here, but they would have been in the exact same boat with version 2.0 yeah. because you'd come in and taught them the, methodology you weren't yeah. helping them catch fish you were teaching them a better way to fish yeah it then replicated 
Right. Well, and a little plug for Firos here. I mean, I think that's our approach to how we consult. Whereas other other companies will do that. They're like, hey, come and we'll build your product for you. And one of the things that I don't believe in about that is if it's something that's valuable enough that you're willing to pay that kind of money to get it, it's probably valuable enough that it should be your guys who have the business expertise. Absolutely. Right? Everything, every, like every company that's building software or running an IT group, they're doing it because there's enough business value to do to do that, right? Either even if their core product is not a software product, um, they're building software because it adds core value to their business, right? It's it's part of their business domain, their expertise and competence in the marketplace. And if you outsource that, whether it's to consultants and contractors or you know one of the big four, um, you're losing out because you're giving them that experience and competence, right? You want your own people to have that. That's the most valuable thing. And that goes back to like, I believe that software development is an exercise in group learning. And so the most valuable product of developing software is the knowledge you gain about your customer and your business. So you always would want to own that. And from our consulting perspective, we can help with strategy. We can help make technology an enabler. Um, you know, we can be an outside perspective to review design decisions, architecture. We can provide development support for things that aren't a part of your core competencies as a business. Um, but I want to partner with you <laughs> and make you successful. It's not about going in and making us successful by stealing business domain knowledge or revenue, uh, or not revenue, but just profits out of the system. Uh, it's, it's really about making the company we're working with as successful as they can be. Right. And that means making the people we're working with as successful as they can be. So I think our emphasis is more on the education and strategy elements, being able to bring in, um, you know, practices and industry knowledge that a company's teams may not have because they don't have that exposure because they've been focused on the business side of the equation for so long. You can come in and help with that augment that technology perspective very easily and you keep that core knowledge about your business where it belongs which is with your leaders in the company well and you touched on something a couple um, minutes ago in that conversation was uh, the lack of ego right because if you've got your focus in the proper place and it's on the customer maybe you're not the star, maybe you're not getting the credit, but that's the whole reason that we're doing this is to go help that customer. And it, it doesn't matter to me if we get the credit or the glory or something like that, as long as they're happy and they're successful, then I firmly believe that comes back around. And mm -hmm. it ultimately, I'm not sure you could teach if there was a massive ego, not you, the, the general you, because um, I think back to one of our first conversations, you were explaining the, the automotive value of Subaru versus, I don't know if you remember this car, like the German cars, right? I may have been trolling a little bit there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, but you described it in such a way that wasn't, you know, destroying Subaru or the fact that I had bought one, but you had just explained it you know, with like, what'd you say, the compression and the cylinders and the engine and things like that. And then you had actually done a study. And it's like, what I really enjoy about talking to you is that there's never, you deal in like scientific fact as much as you possibly can. And it's like, you don't just, you know, for your expertise and your experience, there's just, 
you're so laid back. It's just, <laughs> it's awesome. And I never feel like, um, I've never seen you be, and I don't even think you have the capability to be condescending. Which oh, is well, great. I appreciate that. I definitely used to. I mean, I think that's something that, uh, it's rampant in the industry. Uh, oh, no the doubt. thing, the thing that I've seen is like the, the code review model is where it kind of festers. Mm. Um, and you get people who have these, uh, you know, fledgling leadership capabilities or they're very skilled and so people want to learn from them. And um, the way that they started in the industry, they got ripped apart doing code reviews or project reviews. And so they just keep doing that. And um, it can be totally inappropriate and abusive. And that's where it kind of goes back. Like culturally, if I'm designing the process, I want a code review to be uh like, was this the best way to solve the problem? Like, that should be the teachable learning moment. It shouldn't be me bad-mouthing you because you didn't meet some non-functional requirement for a naming convention on a variable, right? And I've seen that happen way too often. I've broken those types of code reviews up before um, where it was clearly just an excuse to beat somebody else on the team up. Uh, it should be uplifting, you know, and... It's funny, Randall Monroe, the guy who does the XKCD comic, he has a comic out there that talks about this idea of like that you should know something where it's like he, he says he, in the comic, I think the character in the comic or whatever. Uh, so something along the lines of like, I never want to say you should know something. And he gives this statistic about uh, like the amount of information, the rate of the distribution of that information and how that translates to like 10,000 people learning this fact each day. Like just a random, you pick a fact, there's like some average probability that there's 10,000 people who are hearing it the first time in a given day. Right. And so he's like, we should be excited about that. It's like, oh, you don't know about Diet Coke and Mentos? This is awesome. I'm not going to shame you for that. Let's go blow up a bottle of Diet Coke, right? Like, and that's kind of, that's that's where I think, uh, uh you know, I want to I want to go home and be happy with who I am as a person. Like, I don't want to look back on my interactions with somebody, and I, I just I don't want to shame somebody. I'm I'm the person who's going to be shamed the next day because there's going to be something that I don't know. And so, for uh, for me, like that just kind of plays into all of it. Like, I I want to enjoy working with people. I don't see any reason to be a jerk. Um, you know, I want to be happy about who I am. <laughs> and so I just get excited when somebody doesn't know something. It's an opportunity to get to experience that learning moment with them again. I've experienced that in a couple of relationships where they said something like, well, you should have known that. Yeah. Like, well, well, how? And right. if you start uh, just like rewinding everybody's movie in their head, like you're born in different places, different parents, different experiences, all this stuff. Like you're looking at it through your lens mm -hmm. and how on earth without any articulation or any description or expectation setting, I'll apologize and say that I was wrong, that I hurt your feelings, but how would I know I was supposed to know that without you telling me that? So like, I love that where it's like, you should know this. It's like, yeah. no. Well, and that's like, I, for me, I mean, if I ever say should, it's like an instant check. Like, is what I'm about to say appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, right. I, I totally agree with you. I, I view it really as it's, it's more of an exciting thing. And I think in engineering, you know, the 
the people argue all the time about whether or not software engineering should actually be considered engineering, but um, in civil engineering, mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, like people's lives are on the line because yeah. of the decisions you make. Something that seems insignificant, like the tolerance on a part, could impact whether or not somebody goes home to their family at the end of the day. There's a risk involved, right? Um, I would argue that risk is still there in software and we don't approach it rigorously most of the time because the unless you're in like medical devices, the risk appears to be a lot lower, right? But you don't you don't think about the fact that your application not responding could mean that somebody who's driving distracted, you know, gets in a car. So it doesn't sure. make you they were irresponsible for trying to use your thing while they're they're driving, right? But the reality is that everybody's touching software all the time and there is an impact to it. Even if that impact is just that you have more CPU cycles running than you should, you're, you know, costing a company more money, <laughs> you're uh, potentially impacting climate change. There's a million the different, butterfly effect. yeah, there's, there's a million different elements to it. Um, and I'm not saying we should be burdened by that per se, but just that that rigor, I think makes it so that people view it as an excuse. It's like, you got to take this seriously. I'm going to beat you up if you don't, so you don't make the same mistake again. But I think that we know better than that these days. We know that psychologically, that's not how people learn, that that's not the solution to increase quality or reduce a ratio of errors, particularly not in the knowledge work field, right? Like you give somebody PTSD from code reviews, they're not going to produce better quality code. (laughs) They're just going to hate their lives. They're going to go home miserable each day or each week. You know, dread the code review. Well, in a way, it's <clears throat> it's an art form. You know, you were talking about whether it should be engineering, but I look at it if if somebody's creating something and compare, I'm going to maybe go out on a, a little bit of a tangent here, but you compare the piano with 88 keys and you compare the, the keyboard with, you know, the numbers and then 26 letters. Everybody's got the same keyboard and they're all creating something creating different songs different music in different code and it's coming out of somebody's head and in that very very broad definition it's art and if you've got artists they're creative and um that has to be looked at in a certain way yeah well and that's i mean for me i kind of look at art and i I think of the definition of art sort of being that it's a gift Hmm. like it's something that you are are giving to someone that has a higher value because of what you put into it, right? Like to me, that's the definition of art. And so a lot of engineering would qualify as, as art. Um, and there's, you know, a whole bunch of nitpicking about that, like whether or not chess is a sport and should be considered a part of the Olympics. But the, the art perspective, I think, changes the equation a little bit because if you do view your work as art, then you recognize that it's not a, a quid pro quo relationship with you and work or your employer like you're there to to give a gift you're always going to be providing more value than you receive and you can get excited about that yeah like that's that's kind of the basis of craftsmanship right i love that concept when you talk about a company culture that's a huge impact Um, michael lop the the head of engineering at slack um, he talks about that from from his perspective culture um, healthy engineering all of that, a growth mindset is rooted in one simple thing, to be kind. And I view that as being very connected to the concept of, of art, right? Like if, you, if, you, if you're thinking of art as a gift, then kindness, same thing. It's always giving more than you receive, right? And if you're setting that standard in your culture, if you're always giving more than you receive, 
the power dynamics will somewhat take care of themselves. I think that there is more to it. You know, we're dealing with very complex markets, very complex economies, businesses that are very complex and span multiple markets. You think about the amount of engineering that goes into your cell phone, right? It's unimaginable compared to 100 years ago. Oh, it's, yeah. It completely boggles the mind, right? And yet there's a bunch of us who go to work and we write code to make that slab of black glass and metal do stuff every day on top of all of that complexity, right? There's a lot of ways, there's a lot of places for things to go wrong. Um, and when you look at a company that's, that's large and has a complex organization, you have to simplify, you have to reduce that complexity. And a part of that is having that culture of kindness, uh, really an approach that is like art where you're showing up each day to do your best work and to, to give a gift to the people you're working with right? and to your customers, you know? Well, and when you're saying that culture of kindness, it's not a a daycare and throughout everything you've been saying, that's balanced with professionalism and Mm -hmm. accountability. Yeah. And it like the code reviews, it can be done in a, in a sensitive uh, professional, respectful way, but ultimately you're getting to the point of, hey, this has to satisfy these requirements, and yeah. you have to be responsible and a professional and be accountable for what you're doing. Yeah, well, and that's fundamentally a lot of the business value that comes out of software is simplification, right? So the gift you're giving to a customer is that when they want to go to Starbucks and order a coffee, it's simpler, right? There's they can open the app on their phone. With that application, they can say exactly what they want to drink. They've already paid for it. They arrive, they pick it up off the counter, and they walk away, right? So that their software is an enabler for people, and it takes out the complexity. It reduces the number of steps, the amount of time. It it simplifies the equation, right? Uh, If we're talking about um, a healthy engineering culture, you think about how that would translate to highly complex software engineering pieces that need to fit together, conversions of, you know, binary data into structured data, which then has a machine learning algorithm on top of it, which then needs to be deployed on a specific interval, evaluated against other models for bias, for uh, efficiency, correctness, then makes it to the customer. And all of that is in order to simplify, right? Like if we're talking about Amazon, they're making it simpler for you to find a product that you like. Whether you, however you feel about Amazon doesn't matter. One of their core values is they take millions of products and they make it easier to find something that you are going to like that you think is going to be high quality or fit your need, right? And a lot of that is done through very complex software systems. If I want a new engineer to be able to work on that, if I just want Joe <laughs> in a different engineering team to be able to integrate the work that I'm doing so that it can even make it to a customer so that my gift can be received, I have to simplify I have to make it as simple as possible to consume the complexity that I've distilled from the real world into software, right? So that's, companies are complex. Mm-hmm. You need to simplify them, right? <laughs> Using technology can enable you to simplify in dramatic ways. A cool example of this too is like Google. A lot of people focus on their slides, their offices, but one of the cores of their culture is like managers don't um, promote. They, their managers are there for people development purposes. 
in order to get a promotion mm-hmm. from like a mid-level to a senior engineer, basically have to be nominated and peer-reviewed. And it's your peers who say, hey, this guy's ready to be a senior engineer, right? And so they kind of take out a lot of the um, bias in the equation. Still people, there's still going to be biases, right? But the issue before is that uh, everybody uses sports teams analogies. And I think that that can be tough to relate to for engineers. I played some organized sports and I still find it tough to relate to sometimes. (laughs) But... When you have a team effort, how can you measure who contributed what, right? Like exactly. it's, it's like if you go and you score a goal in lacrosse, soccer, hockey, any of these things, it's not really the person who scored the goal who, like they, they definitely put in a lot of effort, but there were four or five people involved to take control of the play, move the ball up the field, get the position in the right place, and then allow that person to score, right? And so if you go in and you dictate a bunch of policy that says like you're going to when you're defining a play, like imagine if it was you pass the ball two feet past the center line. Well, now I've made it so that that person basically, the guy who's scoring doesn't have any reason to uh, even try to score if the guy doesn't pass the ball at two feet past the center line, right? As, oh, he didn't fulfill his end of the agreement. It's his responsibility now, right? <laughs> you're never going to get a collaborative team effort out of that because you created a bunch of rules um, in a system that that actually allows freedom, but isn't designed to support freedom, right? And so if you want to simplify a very complex company, you have to give people more autonomy. You have to make it so that they can create that simplicity through their artistry, through their craftsmanship, through the kindness of working together in a healthy culture on a team. Um, But the the key thing is to set up so that that autonomy is in service of collaboration, right? If I'm giving autonomy in a form where it's self-sufficiency, if I'm saying, hey, you don't have to work with anybody else, just go get this thing done, I'm not going to get the results that I want. That's, you know, your star player in basketball, your, your point guard who can't play on a team, and so you never win a game. He may score more points than everyone else on the team, but you still can't win a game, right? <laughs> You'd rather have the, the average team that works together as a team and can actually score but can't be measured the same way, right? Yeah, I think Pat Riley called that the disease of me when they were, when he was talking about um, the Lakers or whatever he was coaching, the Heat or the Lakers. It's like <clears throat> the, the team will gel, and as soon as they win that first championship, then the real culture challenge starts. Right. Because then they get the taste of success. It's like, oh, well, I, I had more shots, and I, I had more free throws and more rebounds. Yeah. And it's like, well, and me, in, the, me, me, me. in the NBA, you have the uh, – price limits right like the cost limitations on the team <clears throat> yeah so you get in that situation and like a successful team one year can't stay together for a second year because everybody wants their fair share and there's not actually enough to give everybody right the level of salary that they could expect if they were the star player on a different team right, <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah and you're right about engineers and, and teams right because and not to generalize or stereotype but you know in in the STEM fields, you know, maybe sports is not as prevalent as in other things, but I've noticed in organizations where somebody's talking about team, 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 and they're using the right words, but the actions I can tell, and I'm thinking about one particular manager from one particular company I worked for, <laughs> has he's never been in a in a even the mildest even non-sports team situation where a team is like. I'm here to make your life easy. 
Mm -hmm. And your job is to make my life easy and make each other look good. When we're both doing that, that's fundamentally what a team is. And I can tell just based on how this person acted that they would say these words and I would just be stunned. Like, how do you not? No, it's like, (laughs) I I mean, I had the, the great misfortune of being on a team where the captain of the team basically was before every single play was like, all right, your job is to get the ball to me. (laughs) <laughs> right and that was his definition okay. of teamwork so i i'm very familiar with that sort of concept it's like all right we're a team we're gonna do this we're gonna win get everybody pumped up your job is to pass the ball to me right and that's like that i, I feel like that's what happens in a lot of these larger organizations because they push decision making power away from the people doing the work right they make it so that you to get anything done you need five teams ten teams i worked with a company once where the release pipeline for code changed hands 27 times. And you can imagine like to change a comma in a, in a string that was a part of the application would require a minimum of 27 teams in order to release code, right? Wow. So that kind of insanity is, exists, but that it's those exact structures that end up pushing the control away from the people who need to do the work and they make things incredibly complex because all the power structure gets pushed up the chain. You know, you end up with like executives initialing printed out mock-ups <laughs> of software and you really look at that and you go, what in the world happened that this could go so wrong? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like we don't even trust the engineers who have six figure salaries to get a button in the right place. That's the kind of power dynamic, you know, you end up talking about. And that's, that's where I'm, I, I campaign around this idea of radical simplicity because I don't believe that you can give a customer or, uh, you know, the, the person you're trying to serve who's buying your product um, the value that they deserve if you have a complex organization. Like, they will use you. They the, the benefit that you provide to them fundamentally is probably that you're making something in their life simpler. And if you're not doing that, you're failing. And if you can't simplify your own company, I think you probably have a limited time that you're going to be around. Yeah. Because there's options. Yeah. Right? Well, People somebody want... else is going to come along and simplify that equation better than you could. Right. And then yeah. you're going to be out of the market. Um, I don't know the stats, uh, but there's, there's a, I've, I've run into a few good articles um, that talked about kind of the, the, the rate of change for the top of the market and basically showing that time going down, down, down where like 80 years ago, if you were Ford, you could expect to be the number one player in the marketplace once you achieved it for 50 years hmm. because of how long it took for other companies to get rolling and everything. And here, because things are so complex, it kind of goes the opposite direction in the sense that if you can simplify a portion of this large amount of complexity, you can shoot to the top of the market very quickly, right? And so um, if you have a complex company now like i said i'm forgetting the exact numbers but it's gradually gotten shorter in the 80s it was like 20 years now i think they're saying it's seven and it's moving towards five or even three that a company can stay at the top of the market and there's anecdotal examples that are kind of intuitive you look at the scooter market right and there's multiple billion dollar scooter startups and we know that market isn't big enough to support multiple billion dollar (laughs) rentals scooter rentals right and so uh, we fully expect that 
only one or two of those is going to survive, but how long are they going to be number one? I mean, even the guys who started out, Bird, who were number one, they were number one for a year with a multi-billion dollar valuation or a billion dollar valuation, and I don't think they're number one anymore. <laughs> but it happens very quickly. I'm and, getting my know. head around the fact that they're a billion dollar company. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever position they are in the market, the fact that they're a billion dollar company is good for them. Right. Yeah. They figured yeah. it out. They got it done. And I'm not hating on anybody that that can cash in a payday like that. I just don't quite get it. Yeah. But I, the the point I'm trying to make is just kind of that there is a simplicity to that, right? Sure. Like there was that last mile transit problem to solve. Yeah. And it wasn't segways. It wasn't flying cars. It wasn't the tax system and mass transit, right? It was the guys who took the $500 scooter beefed it up a little bit <laughs> and threw it out there for really cheap rentals to solve the last mile problem, right? Like the bike sharing companies weren't really hitting that level of success either. No. And so uh, it just kind of shows like these, from my perspective, these markets are really disruptive. The rate of change is higher than ever and radical simplicity is a big indicator of success. I love that term, radical simplicity, which is very hard to execute because you can have that first release or first design Mm-hmm. And it's not as simple as it can be. Yeah, it just it just isn't. Nobody ever hits it out of the park, or rarely hits it out of the park, with as simple as it can possibly be. They have to take the action to learn, and that's the other yeah. kind of side of the equation. You can ideate forever, you can dream up the perfect simple system. It doesn't mean anything if you don't execute. And along with that, I mean, you're not going to be as good as when you take that first step because you're going to learn things from taking that step that are going to mean that that idea is better than it ever could have been if you sat there and continued ideating on it. Right. right. So what was your journey to, I, I, I don't want to get too wordy with this, but enlightenment, like how did you become to view code and culture? Like did somebody teach you? Did you, did you, see bad examples and want it to be better. <laughs> Take me on that journey. Well, I, I, I hope that this comes away as encouraging, but um, I mean, I view myself- just a little bit for me. I, Thanks. I kind of, I don't really, honestly, I don't view myself as being particularly smart. kind of view myself as being intensely average, but it's my awareness of that that is what makes a difference. Um, easy example. I'm super absent-minded. So- I will lose my keys, my wallet all the time. Well, I haven't lost my wallet in several years because it's now only ever in two places. <laughs> it's either in my pocket or it's on the credenza at my house, right? Yeah. Like, so I've got a system in place to fix my absent-mindedness, right? And so I'm not some genius when it comes to not losing my wallet. I'm very average, below average, really, because I'm so absent-minded. I used to lose it multiple times a week. Um, it's just that in order to address that, I put some systems in place, uh, and now it's not something that I think about or is a part of my you know, routine at all to go find my wallet anymore, right? Uh, but I didn't actually start with computers. Um, my parents didn't allow us to have computers, video games, any of that when I was growing up. Um, we had a... 12-inch RCA TV that had a 30-minute time limit on it. And so when I was 14, a friend of mine, his dad worked for Sun, 
and he had I don't remember which model it was but he had a um, uh, very very nice computer that he was allowed to bring home because he was in the engineering groups was one of their prototypes and all that stuff Um, so it was a a fancy Sun Solaris system Um, but it was my first real exposure to computers and so um, I was like wow what what is going on with this and I went back to my dad and I was like I really want a computer for my birthday (laughs) (laughs) he did his classic um nope (laughs) and then he kind of softened and he said all right if you if you can pay for half of it you can get a computer but you have to build it and I think that was because it was around the time that some of the um uh, like that Dell was being successful. And so oh, he had yeah. seen the stuff about Michael Dell, you know, starting the company in his dorm room and, and this stuff. And so he, he was like, Oh, all right, well, I'm going to make sure that he has that experience. And so he made me build it. And I was miserable at first cause I had no idea what I was doing, but I went back to this guy who worked at sun and was like, can you help me put this thing together? <laughs> and and uh, I learned a ton through the process uh, but I was, I, I would say I was very late um, because most of the people I work with and, uh, you know, most people who are my age, they have exposure to computers going back to when they're like four or five years old. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I didn't consider myself good at all. I, my first crack at programming, I got very excited about Palm Pilots a few years later and decided I wanted to write some games for Palm Pilots and I picked up a... A programming book that was on basic um, and lost my mind trying to wrap my head around it one of the most confusing parts of it to me was that I couldn't understand why I needed to write the program for a palm pilot on a computer <laughs> which <laughs> seems ridiculous now but, <laughs> but it was it was this it was this very I was like what I thought I was going to be actually writing the code on the on, on a palm pilot <laughs> and it, nope you need to do it on a computer and I just for whatever reason, that was a big turnoff for me. So for years, uh, I, my destination was pre-med. And I actually went to college, oh. pre-med, was planning to be a doctor of some kind. And my backup plan was to be a physicist. <laughs> so um, I changed majors, I think, four times before I got to my junior year. And uh, uh, at that point, um, I had still been interested in computers, but I didn't consider myself good at it. And... Uh, it was just kind of a hobby, just something I was interested in. I dabbled with it a little bit um, and never really got deeply into the programming side of things. So um, I was taking an elective uh, that just looked interesting. And the professor for the class had looked over the attendance chart and saw my major. And he was like, what, what is a pre-med student doing in a junior level computer science class i was like well i'm it's just an elective <laughs> it doesn't matter for my core gpa and <laughs> it was interesting i'd rather do that than take another anthropology class or whatever um and uh so developed a bit of a relationship with him over the course of the semester and at the end of the class uh he kind of overstated it but he said oh you know this he said, your, your talents would be wasted in medicine. And I was starting to realize that too. The memorization was getting to me and just kind of had this idealized view of medicine going into it of how I was going to be able to help people um, and realized that that just wasn't going to be the case. And I also realized that I was going to be 
Um, I wasn't going to get to be outside. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Just kind of, it, it all came crashing in. I was like, I've got six more years of school minimum. Uh, I got to do residency. Like, it felt like I was going to be putting my life on hold um, to some extent to do medicine. And I just was not in, enjoying it nearly wow. as much as I thought I would. So um, with his urging, I kind of got the confidence to switch to computer science and then proceeded to have to catch up very, very quickly because I had just a couple computer science electives. And so I needed to take all the core classes. Um, I needed to take math again, which it had been seven years since I had taken Calc 1. So I think I failed Calc 2 three times before I passed it because I didn't understand what I was missing. It ended up being pre-calculus. <laughs> it was one of those things, it's like, what am I doing wrong here? Uh, so uh, like I said, I'm, I'm intensely average. I failed Calc 2 three times. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm less than average because I still kept going at that point, right? I didn't give up. Uh, but the end result was that I graduated and then um, started my own business and uh, um, started out uh, building things uh, and, and um, then transitioned into consulting in part because of the experiences I had building software. And I realized... I, I kind of got to the point where I realized my individual contribution um, was really, really high, but it didn't matter because what I was giving to people, they just would want to rewrite. Like I could give somebody the perfect solution and their instinct was always to rewrite it because they didn't understand it. But I also started to realize that I could go in and build something for a company and that might make the company as a whole as much as you know 10% better, which seems amazing. But that impact was nowhere near as high as if I went in and I made the engineering team 10% better. Yeah. Right. And that started to be a lot more interesting to me. And um, I like working with people. Like, I I know I could work remotely, but I really enjoy coming into the office. And maybe that that's a little weird. But um, I, I just have fun working with people and the dynamics, interacting, having conversations, teaching people things. And so... Um, all that kind of played together where I realized that I, I really enjoyed consulting. So that's what kind of led me down that path. And it was just that as I was contracting and consulting, I accumulated experiences very, very quickly. And um, so I built up a lot of expertise and knowledge from those exposures very quickly. And then I've been turning that into value for clients. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Was there a mentor? Did you have anybody that... Oh, I've had quite a few. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's been some awesome... Uh, some awesome people who have really helped me out. Uh, one of my early contracts, um, the CTO of the company ended up offering to mentor me and I spent several years learning from him, um, not just technology and like <clears throat> technologist decisions, but uh, also risk management and sort of team dynamics and all, all this kind of stuff. He was really instrumental and I've been very fortunate to kind of have constant mentorship from people who were incredible <laughs> far far more experience and exposure and just years of life than than me and willing to pass that on and I think that's another reason that I enjoy doing that is because I know the impact it, it had on me um, not just from a career perspective but on my whole life and so uh, I like to be able to pass that on to people that's really cool well, and uh, <clears throat> the the more that I get to know you, the more that I just enjoy 
the stories and the approach and the uh, refreshing and amazing lack of ego. And you, know, you make my job very easy. I was like, just talk to the guy, <laughs> you know, and just start a relationship and see where it goes. And it's just been fun to be a part of all this. So it's, yeah. just, it's very enjoyable. No, I agree. I think from a consulting perspective too, like I enjoy working with you because of you, but then also uh, you're really good at some of the things that I am not. <laughs> and like the part I always disliked about consulting was having to manage all of the, um, the big picture relationships, remembering to invoice people, scheduling meetings, following up with people. Like so much of the time it was really just, I wanted to go in there and do the work and build the relationships with the guys I was going to be working with and, and you know doing doing the consulting and teaching and it felt like i was spending so much of my time trying to drum up business and having non-technical conversations or legal conversations and trying to get stuff set up and so i'm really enjoying that you know i get to work to my strengths you get to work to your strengths and it's a blast to work together (laughs) yeah and I do it the same way. I come in and I my whole sales strategy is I take a, a blank pad and a pen and I just shut up and I let them talk because they don't care what I know about. They don't care about any of that. They want to tell me about their problems and I want to go fix them. And I'll be yeah. honest and tell them that's not what we do, but we can fix that. And I've got people that can do that other thing for you. And it's just, you know, I like my, if I had to choose between the deal or my reputation, I would take my reputation. Oh, yeah, because I don't want to yeah. promise anything I can't deliver. And it's just like, just like you, I want to go home and, and like myself at the end of the day mm-hmm. and do it my way, which hopefully is the, the right way for the customer, which is just, that's how I can sleep very, very well at night. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's key. And I think, I think there's a, a humbleness to that as well uh we're not coming in to tell people what to do we're coming in to hear what they need to do and then figuring yeah. out how to help make that happen make it possible some of the other big companies out there really it's like they come in they don't really listen to you and then they just recommend the same partners they would have if you said nothing right it's like it's already pre-planned and they're just they might have a headphone in one ear right because they're just calling through the motions so that they can ship you off to a partner and, uh, you know, or find more business inside the company or whatever it may be. And that's not, that's not our operating model, which is part of what attracted me to this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, Tyler, it's been, it's been great capturing all this. And, uh, just, like I said, I enjoy just hanging around with you. It's, it's awesome. So yeah, same here. I always look forward to coming into the office the days you're going to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Well, happy Friday and have a great weekend.